I thought she had the problem. Now that in a nutshell is very much of what the problem is in the church today. We pick at each other, we misunderstand each other, and we automatically assume that we are correct and someone else is wrong. I'm going to continue the series on the unity that I started. This will be number three. What is unity? Now let's look at Webster's def definition. And as we look at these definitions that Webster gives, see if it sounds like the church today. Harmony. Oneness. Accord. Singleness of effort. Is that what we see in the church today? Everyone working together in a singleness of effort. Symmetry. Are we symmetrical? Or do we have some pretty jagged edges? Here's a good one. Consistency of style and character. Now, do any one of those describe the overall church of God as we are experiencing it today? I can't see very much in there. Uh, that fits us. But that is what one of unity is described as. Now what are the purposes of unity? We'll find in the Bible that the purposes of unity are peace, oneness, wholeness, and there are many other elements of this truly gigantic subject that the Bible covers. But we need to understand that two things are happening at once in the church today. Let's go first of all to John 4 and verse 24. Here Jesus Christ is talking to the woman at the well and had some very important points for her. I don't want to go into all of that, as I covered in an article a while back. But notice in verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Now, she felt that her credentials were good, that they had known God uh, and the Samaritans for quite some time, but he was letting her know that she didn't understand who God was all about or what God was all about or who he was. And he told her, You worship you know not what. We know what we worship, for foul salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So he said, this is the beginning. It now is, and it will come. So it's beginning, it began with him, and it would continue. But he says, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Two elements here are brought out. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God is looking for people who will do the two above things. Worship both in spirit, attitude, approach, and in truth. You can't have true worship without both those elements being involved. He goes on to explain in verse 24, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So he repeats himself for emphasis here. Well, the woman didn't quite get it. She says, I know Messiah is coming. And she didn't realize at this point that he was it. Before this was over, she ran to town and told everyone 
that he was in. She began to get the pictures. Now, here's the deal. We had a problem in Worldwide years ago from which many of us fled. That was the beginning of the troubles. The ministry, the leadership began to depart from the truth. And when they began to give us false doctrine, we realized we can't worship God here with false doctrine. Now that is the first of a two-pronged attack that Satan has made. And that we can label, I think, quite easily an apostasy. Jude, Peter, Paul all spoke of an apostasy at the end time. They had an apostasy just before the uh, apostles were killed in the early New Testament church. But there are enough elements given in their testimonies to show that this would also occur at the end of the age. So we have, number one, an apostasy going on in the church. The scattering is not necessarily occurring in worldwide. Those people who have stayed there basically have accepted the false doctrine and have become a part of that apostasy started by the leaders. They are not necessarily being scattered, even though they are beginning to break up. And perhaps you could say that they are suffering both an apostasy and a scattering. But what happened is that many people started coming out of that apostasy and not accepting it, denying it, saying, I will not accept that. And they came out here and there in groups of two and three and thirty and forty and finally into hundreds and even thousands coming out at once. But were in separate different groups because they either knew each other or they knew a minister somewhere or their whole group came out or half of it came out because of the leadership that was involved or individuals and families came out on their own. But if it were only an apostasy that was occurring, the problem should have been solved because we saw that the truth was being taken away. That is an apostasy. But it didn't solve the problem, did it? Something else is occurring. Because those who came out of the apostasy and hung close to the truth are also being scattered. So we have both an apostasy and, on the other hand, a scattering. Now the first, the apostasy, had to do basically with the truth. But those who came out did not accept that remained basically true to the truth. So what's the problem here? Here we have spirit, attitude, that is wrong. That is why we are continuing to be scattered, is our attitude is wrong. Yours is and mine is. And I will try to explain how that is as we go through here because that is the central theme of what I have to say today. Now let's go to John 17, first of all. Jesus Christ, at this point, had lived his life. He was right at the time where he was about to die. And he prayed a prayer to the Father. And this is a very interesting prayer. The, the elements that he has in here uh, that he prays about are some of the problems that we're facing today. But notice how he addresses his Father. 
Verse 3, This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So he reminds the Father of the plan, the purpose, the reason that he had come to the earth, that they might come to know God and Jesus Christ. Now notice what Christ said. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. He homes right in immediately on having fulfilled the purpose of God. Not as a human being fulfilled whatever desires, whatever purposes he might have developed once he walked the earth and saw what other people were doing. He did not get involved in the things of this world, the desires, the materiality of this world, but he cast those aside and kept his mind riveted on the purpose of God. What is God doing was paramount in Christ's mind. He never lost sight of his purpose on earth, what he had to do, and why he was here. He said, and then he claims a promise. He said, I've done what you asked me to do. And now, O Father, verse 5, glorify you me with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I've finished the job. I've done what you sent me here to do. I have manifested your name to the men which you gave me out of, of, the, out of the world. Now notice on down in verse 11. I'll break into the middle of the verse. Father, keep through your own name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. So he said, I've done the job you gave me to do. Please glorify me. Now I ask you to make them one as we are one. Now this goes back to Webster. Harmony, accord, singleness of effort, consistency of style and character. That was his goal. That was his prayer for you and me. Not just for the disciples back then, but for you and me at the end time. And he says, I've kept all these and lost none except Judas, and that was pre-planned. He knew ahead of time. Uh, verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then he says, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. So he's telling the Father to keep them through the Bible. And that is what we have to do, is keep our nose in the Bible in order to come to have the kind of oneness that he's talking about here. So he says, this is how it has to be done, through his word. And then he goes on down in verse 21. That, you all, that they all may be one. Verse 22, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. So he wants us to have the same kind of relationship with him and with each other that the Father and the Son have in total, absolute harmony and agreement. So he shows his purpose here to bring us together. But at the moment, he's scattering us. Now what's going on? Romans 11:26 says his purpose is to save all Israel. If that is his purpose, I firmly believe he will accomplish it. And it's not just Israel. What's the most famous scripture in the Bible that everyone quotes and you see on bumper stickers? John 3:16. He came to save the world. Now 
God. You believe in a God who can do that. That's his purpose. That's his job. But mankind will become one with him. And he's working toward that. Now let's go to Psalm 51. I want to give an example of another man. Uh, this particular man had some problems. Christ never strayed from the purpose that God gave. But you remember the story of David, and you're all very familiar with Psalm 51 and David's prayer of repentance here. But what had been David's problem? David had gotten away from the purposes of God. He had begun to look around and get involved in his own purposes, his own pleasures, his own desires, his own wealth, in Uriah's life. And on and on it went. David was off the track. He had strayed. And then he began his prayer with saying, Have mercy on me according to your loving kindness, and ask for mercy, and blotting out of his sins, and that he be washed thoroughly and cleansed. And he said he acknowledged his transgression, and his sin was always right there in front of him. He couldn't get away from it. And you and I have had that problem. We look back on our lives sometimes, and I gave a whole sermon about that recently, that that isn't what we need to be doing. And David was putting this behind him at this point. But this was during the time of, of uh, repentance that he was saying this. But notice now down in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He realized his attitude had been wrong, that he had strayed from God's purposes, that his spirit was wrong. Now see, here was a man who understood the truth. Here was a man who had the truth, a man who loved the truth. Read the Psalms, all of them, and how he extols the truths of God, the laws of God, the ways of God, the statutes of God. He mentions that constantly. So he had the truth, but his spirit, his attitude, his purpose was wrong. He had gotten selfish. So he asked not to be cast away in verse 11, and that God would not take his Holy Spirit from him, because he realized he had to have that in order to have the right spirit and attitude himself. So notice verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with your free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. So he went through this prayer of repentance. He said, my attitude has been wrong, my spirit has been wrong, I've gotten selfish, now I want the right spirit reinstalled. <laughs> and then he realized that he had to get his purposes in line with God's purposes. Then would he teach the truth again, the word of God again. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, you God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. See, he had forgotten that. Sidetracked. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. He's getting his mind back on God here. He had been chastened pretty severely. He was not God-centered anymore. He had become the center of his attention, his passions, his desires, his so-called physical needs had become the center of his attention. Selfishness. For you desire not sacrifice, else would I give it. You delight not in burnt offering. God doesn't want us sacrificing. 
in terms of doing penance or that type of thing. He said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. That is, humility, contriteness, the attitude of a little baby, of malleable clay, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So he realized his spirit and attitude had to change from one of pride and vanity and self to one of utter contriteness. Then God would be able to use him. Can God use a church today that is filled with vanity, with self-purpose, with pride, with ego, that puts other organizations down, who puts other people down because they're not doing the same as they are? Like the lady I ran into that said, I had an accent. She was, it was very obvious to her, I wasn't from here, I was from somewhere else. And she wouldn't be satisfied until she found out where I was from. Is someone wrong simply because they aren't like you? Are they wrong because they aren't like me? See, I assume she had an accent. No, she doesn't have an accent. She talks just like everybody else around here. <laughs> I was the foreigner. Now notice, this, this is a, a very interesting thing in here, considering where we are today. Verse 18, he, he talked in verse 17 about a broken spirit, a contrite heart, and that this is what God would not despise. This is something God can work with. In fact, he says there, isn't it, Isaiah 66, 2, to this man will I look to him that has a contrite spirit, to one who is humble. All right, David gets right back on beam here. He says in verse 18, do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build you the walls of Jerusalem. Now this fits right in with where the church is today. We have become self-centered, doing our own thing. We got away from the purposes of God, and he is chasing us betimes. He is scattering us, as we've seen in many, many sermons and scriptures. And it's for cause. And once we are contrite, once we are humbled, then he begin, can begin to use us to help build the church. That's what David is saying here. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. And we've established that Zion is the church today. Spiritual Israel is whom God is working with. Build you the walls of Jerusalem. So it reminds you of Nehemiah, of Ezra. It reminds you of many scriptures in which God talks about building the church. Then you will be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. See, once we get our attitudes correct, and we are righteous again in spirit, then he'll be pleased with that kind of righteousness. So God accomplished in David what Christ also fulfilled. See, we become the center of attention. My house, my car, my job, my life, my family, Whatever it is that has to do with my empirical self is what we tend to get our minds on. And that obviously is what happened in worldwide. We got our minds on ourselves. We got our minds off of doing God's work, whatever, it might have, whatever form it might have taken. 
Well, what happens when somebody, let's say your father, and you're a child, realizes that you have become spoiled, that you have become selfish, that you won't share, that you won't give to your siblings, and you become rebellious? If he's a good father, he will probably take off his belt and bend you over and begin wailing away on your rear end. And you will cry in rebellion and anger that you are being strapped. But then when it becomes relentless and he doesn't quit, suddenly fear enters your mind. And as he continues, the fear gives way to utter repentance. Because now your mind is not necessarily just on yourself, but your mind is on your dad. Your mind is on your dad whipping you. And your mind is on your dad stopping that. Now you're certainly involved because it's hurting you. But you see, you, don't, you are not the center of attention anymore. That arm back there, right behind you, is the center of your attention. Once that repentance enters your voice, the rebellion turns to fear, turns to repentance is when the parent should stop. And that's exactly what God is going to do. Our attention had become on worldly material things. And he is smacking us until we suddenly, not suddenly, but until we do turn our attention back and get our attention, our focus, on God and his purpose. Just as Christ perfectly did, and as David learned the hard way, that must be done. Are we beginning to refocus on God? Is that what this is doing to us? With some, they're just drifting on off. They're not listening to what God is saying. Others are getting the message. They're beginning to repent, to turn to God with their whole heart. That is what he is after. Now let's go to Revelation 3. Let's see this. This is one that we're all very, very familiar with and probably frustrated with because it shows us. Revelation 3, verse 14, the church became Laodicea and lukewarm, just going through the motions, in the truth, sitting in the right pew, we thought, as long as we're in the church, we'll be okay. But it just did not work out that way because God wanted more. These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginner of the creation of God, the instigator, the starter. I know your works, but you are neither cold nor hot. I would you were cold or hot. Then I'd know what to do with you. I could use you or not use you. I know your works, that you're not that. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say, I, see, I, my purpose is in me. I want to be happy. I want to be fulfilled. I want to be in God's kingdom. I, I, I. I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and you know, and you know not that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. We thought we were spiritually okay. Our mind was on the physical too much. 
Now this is talking about spiritual blindness and nakedness, not physical. Because I wouldn't know today if I were naked up here. And so would you, if you were naked, sitting out there. So this is talking about our spiritual condition, our attitude, our spirit. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, and white raiment, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness does not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Wake up, he says. Open your eyes. See what is going on. A few are beginning here and there to wake up and realize what is happening. Happening. The current leader of one of the groups recently said in a letter, we might begin to consider, words to this effect, this isn't a direct quote, but we might, we could begin to consider that maybe God is chastening us. And there have been a couple of articles I've seen written by other people outside this group who have said the scattering is our fault. But God is doing this. So you see, it's like the child I was talking about. After you get smacked on the rear end enough times, you begin to realize maybe somebody wants to get my attention. Maybe somebody is angry with me. Oh, it's bad. Now maybe this is oversimplified in one sense because when he starts taking off your belt, his belt, you already know you're in trouble. But maybe God already had his belt off and sort of slipped up on us and it's taking us a while to wake up to what's going on. We've been smacked several times, it seems, or continually. And there is not closeness and unity and focus and oneness and singleness of effort. It just isn't there. We esteem our own things. What about Matthew 25, verse 37? I won't turn to that one. But it says, it'll, at the end time, it will be as in the days of Noah. People will just be going on about business. See, we lost focus. Mr. Armstrong, for many, many years, or Herbert Armstrong, I should say, we've dropped the mister. Herbert Armstrong would focus us on what God's purpose was at that time. To preach the gospel around the world as a witness, to call many people to God's truth. And boy, did he keep us on that beam. But we began to lose that. We began to forget that. We settled down comfortably and thought we were okay. But that's not what God thought. Now let's go back and revisit the book of Haggai. I gave a sermon on this two and a half years ago now, or almost that. But let's see some more in here about the church today. Review it a little bit and maybe add some thoughts. Book of Haggai. He addresses Zerubbabel and Joshua first. Now we know from the book of Zechariah that Joshua and Zerubbabel are the two witnesses. Zechariah 3 and 4 make that pretty plain. And Revelation 11 coupled with that makes their job fairly clear. But Haggai itself, along with Zechariah 3, where it talks about them feeding all seven of the churches during uh, the end time, combine that with the book of Haggai, and it becomes very clear that they have a dual job. One to bring great warning to the world, and the other is with the church. So he addresses them. Therefore, the book of Haggai has to be talking about the very end time. Now, yes, there was a type 
And there have probably been several types of where there was a former temple and a latter temple. Uh, there was the temple that was destroyed, uh, built and destroyed, and there was Herod's temple. So there have been several temples. But we're speaking spiritually here, and this is talking about the two witnesses at the end time. So he addresses these two people. And he says, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. People are saying, We have to take care of our families. We have to do this. We have to do that. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your paneled houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Immediately he says, Consider what you're doing. What is your purpose? Are you sidetracked? You've sown much and bring in little? Now we could look at the economy today and realize that with inflation and various things that are occurring that uh, we sowed much, we worked hard, and yet it seems to be being taken away with taxes, inflation, whatever else. And maybe one of these days when the stock market falls it'll be taken away in one great crash. You eat but you have not enough. You drink but you're not filled with drink. He clothes you, but there's none warm, and he that earns wages earns wages to put them into a bag with holes. So spiritually we feel unfed, and there are people wandering back and forth, group to group, organization to organization, uh, on how many tape lists or whatever, trying to find spiritual food today. We sowed, but we're not reaping much. We were in God's church for 20, 30, 40 years, most of us. But suddenly the teaching is watered down. The meat is not there. And in some cases, even if there is meat available, people gag on it. In other words, we're not satisfied. We're not happy. We're wandering about. We can't find the answers that we feel that we need. But he says again, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and fill the house. Get back onto the beam of what my purpose is, God says. This is an end-time prophecy written to the end-time church, saying, get your mind on my purposes. Not on materiality, not on the things of this world, not on your own houses, but the house of God, the church of God. You look for much, and lo, it came to little. We thought, boy, the church is getting bigger and bigger, and everything will be fine, and one of these days we'll get a call, and we'll all run off to a place of safety. But it didn't happen that way. Because like David and like many others, we got sidetracked. We became self-centered, not God-centered. Why? Oh, wait a minute. He says in verse 9, You look for much, and lo, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is waste, and you run every man to his own house, his own purposes and things. And boy, is his church laid waste. His house is almost destroyed. And Christ said it would happen in Matthew 24, too. Not one stone left upon another. Isaiah 5 talks about many great and fair houses being torn down. 
Many, many churches would occur right here at the end among the people who are supposed to be worshiping in spirit and in truth. Therefore the heaven over you has stayed from dew, and the earth has stayed from her fruit, and I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and the wine, and so on. And there is a famine, a spiritual famine in the land, as Amos says in Amos 8. But then Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and did fear before God. So at some point, God is going to appoint leaders and they and the people are going to wake up. They're going to fear God. And they're going to respond. They're going to get their mind back on God's purpose, that is, building the church. Saving Israel. Spiritual Israel today and physical Israel later in the millennium and great white throne judgment. Along with the rest of the world and their order. But first and foremost is accomplishing the first fruits getting them to salvation. We don't know how many people in the world heard Jesus Christ. How many heard Paul? How many heard Peter? But we do know of those who were written about in the, in the Bible who did turn to God and did obey. You see, that's what God's purpose was all along. We don't know how much the gospel might have been preached during the Middle Ages. That was not all that God's purpose revolved around. The overall purpose is to bring everyone to oneness and salvation. That's the reason God started this whole thing, to share his kind of living with us. <laughs> we didn't even exist. But he wanted to share. So he became a father. And our brother wants to share. That is his purpose. There will come a time when there will be no need to preach the gospel around the world. That will have been accomplished. Meanwhile, there are, I mean, people will either be in God's kingdom or they won't, and it will all be over. Preaching of the gospel is a means to an end, and the end is the purpose of God, and that is salvation. God said that he will be with these two witnesses at the end, and the remnant of the people, verse 14, came and did work. Now, in chapter 2, it's interesting that he spoke to these two individuals again and to the residue of the people. Well, what are we coming up with now? We had a great apostasy, and many people left the truth. We had a great falling away from the Spirit of God, the attitude, the reason for the church being here, and got involved in our own things, just as David did. And now he's talking about the end-time church. Now, there are many theories about Haggai and Zechariah, but it seems to me very clear that this is talking, when it talks about the former temple and the latter temple here, the temple coming apart and being rebuilt, the final fulfillment of this has to be right at the end of this age, because he's addressing the two leaders who are there to do it. Then he says to the residue, and that's who we are, we're what's left after the apostasy, after the scattering, and we are part of the scattering, but I mean, some of those who were scattered have also, over a period of time, completely given it up. <laughs> Just left it all. But the residue, the remnant, the ones who are still struggling to follow God's ways, 
and to repent, the residue will come together to work. So God is going to begin to work unity. But what I want to get across is that we have to get our minds back on his purposes and off our own. <laughs> we have to restore, or have restored, the Spirit of God within us. In verse 3, since we've established that this has to be the last fulfillment of former and latter temples, uh, we can see that a little more in verse 3. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison, comparison of it as nothing? What's left is not much. It doesn't even begin to compare with what was here, let's say, in 1980. Or even in 1986 when Herbert Armstrong died. Compare what is left with that, and there's just not much here. Who is left among us that saw that? So this is speaking of one generation at the end, during the time of Joshua and Zerubbabel. And I firmly believe that that time is upon us, that we are at the end of the age, and that those two will appear fairly soon. I'm not going to try to get into age and dating here at all. The timing of this is entirely up to God. But he wants us to see and understand that we got our minds off his purpose and that we were scattered as a result. We have to restore the spirit and attitude of what needs to be done. So he says, be strong, Zerubbabel and Joshua and to, and to the people. And he says... Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts in verse 4. And he says, Fear not, it's just a little while till I will shake the heavens and the earth. So this thing is very close. Notice verse 9. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says the Lord of hosts. So what is going to be rebuilt is going to be better, more close to God than what we just came out of. Now, some of us who have been around for 40 or 50 years in the church of God saw what was built there. And what we have to look forward to is something far greater than what was under Herbert Armstrong. Because when God puts this thing together for the last time under the two witnesses, it will be forever. It will never be torn down again. Because Christ will come back to that church once reassembled, and he will use that church, along with those who are resurrected as first fruits with the end-time church, to restore salvation and grace to all Israel and ultimately to the world. But notice, verse 9 again, And in this place will I give peace, says the Lord of hosts. To me, that just sends chills up and down my spine to think that he is going to bring us peace. He's going to appoint leaders to bring us to peace. It's just hard to imagine the way things are right now with people warring and fighting and tumble-bugging their way through life. The sadness, the hurt, the emotional destruction that we're going through and seeing God's house being destroyed in front of our very eyes. But that is going to change that we will have peace. 
But he tells us in this very book that before that peace comes, only a residue of people are going to wake up, understand, and go to work. Retaining the truth and changing the attitude and spirit. That's what has to be done. Because until that attitude of humility and meekness and kindness and gentleness returns, and we don't put down each other by action or by tongue, there cannot be peace. And I will tell you that not everyone is going to do this. Only a residue, only a remnant of the church. Because that's who he says right here in response, only a residue. How much is a residue? Ever pour something out of a bucket? And what's left is a residue. Maybe something sort of sticky like honey. Most of it pours out. Water just kind of all goes except for a few drips. Well, maybe there's an analogy. No, I'll leave that one alone. But let's say honey. And some of it sticks to the bottom and the sides. And that's a residue. Now, you can either be part of it or not be part of it. But God tells us to get to work. Isn't that what David did? When he realized he was off the track, he got to work. He got on his knees. And he said, renew a right spirit within me. Now let's go to Psalm 85. Psalm 85. more back here again I didn't look this up to be sure but probably it's the psalm of David and I think it starts out with a bit of a prophecy Lord you have been favorable to your land you have brought back the captivity of Jacob you have forgiven the iniquity of your people you've covered all their sin and perhaps this might have a lot of applications but it might apply to the church today in that we came out of this world and God did give us forgiveness and mercy and allowed us to become, brought us to a point of conversion and the ingestion of his Holy Spirit, and we were favored by God. Verse 3, you've taken away all your wrath. You've turned yourself from the fierceness of your anger. Now, maybe this is a prophecy from, for the future, but perhaps it has also been somewhat fulfilled in the church. Turn us, O God, of our salvation and cause your anger toward us to cease. Maybe the first few verses are basically only a plea for God to bring this turning of his anger that he has toward us. Because verse 4 shows that he is clearly angry. Verse 5, will you be angry with us forever? It seems like it, doesn't it? This thing just goes on and on and on. The churches keep coming apart and coming apart and coming apart. Will you draw out your anger to all generations? Is this thing just going to go on forever? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? And that's what we hope for, that God will revive us. Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. Okay. I'll open my ears. I'll hear what God has to say. 
for he will speak peace to his people. We just read that in the book of Haggai. At the end, he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. There we are. But let them not turn again to folly. There's a warning with this. Don't turn to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Now there's a nice coupling. You see, we have basically the people that scattered, not the apostasy, but those who have been scattered have essentially retained the truth. But what are we lacking? The humility, the meekness, to show mercy on one another. So we fight in war among ourselves as to who is the best group. You know, it reminds me of a fishing can full of worms arguing over who is the very finest worm in the can. The fish don't really care which was the finest worm as they swallow the hook. But Satan would love to have us comparing ourselves among ourselves, which is not wise. It's the wrong spirit, the wrong attitude, and we will be swallowed up by bigger fish out there. But mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. So righteousness has to come before peace will be accomplished. Before unity, wholeness, and oneness of purpose spring forth. So he puts mercy and truth together, then righteousness and peace. When we follow the truth, we become righteous. And when we are righteous, we have peace. Now, should I have to add the next question, the next thought? We don't have peace today. Therefore, we must not have righteousness. Because he says they meet together and kiss each other. You might write down Psalm 89, 14. I won't go back to that one. It says essentially the same thing. <clears throat> but let's go now to Matthew 9. Uh, excuse me, Matthew 5 and verse 9. Here he says, and I'll get there in a moment. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Which ones will God recognize as his children? Not masters, but his children, the children of God, the ones who make peace. If you've noticed, peace does not come automatically. It has to be made. There are ways that you make peace. Now, the world has its ways of making peace. In fact, they called one uh, handgun, the Colt 45, the peacemaker. We've probably all heard the sermonette given about that years and years ago. I don't remember who gave it. But it's one of those that sticks in your mind. Because they figured with that handgun, they could make peace. Shoot the fellow you're arguing with, and things are peaceful. Now, I would disagree with that. They might be quiet. <laughs> but peace would not break out. Many, many Western novels and movies have been written on this very thing. Because as soon as you shirk the fellow to make peace with him, his relatives become very vengeful, very frustrated, and ready to kill you. 
then you can't live in peace because they're chasing you all over Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, and wherever else you want to go. Not only that, <clears throat> you may not have peace yourself because you are facing the possibility of a hangman's noose, of being incarcerated the rest of your life, and just maybe there might even be a little conscience, conscience about the person you'd gunned down to make peace. And you might not be able to sleep well at night. Yes, you got quiet, <laughs> but you didn't get peace. So destroying our enemies or putting them down is not the answer. And another approach of the world is kill them all and let God sort them out. That's the way we fight wars, see? Man's way of having peace is to start a war and kill everybody in the other country that you possibly can kill. It's the same principle as the Colt 45 peacemaker. They won't fight with you if you kill them all. So, using that approach, as soon as everybody's dead but one man on earth, then we'd have peace. <laughs> Except that he'd get awfully lonely. But ethnic cleansings, they call them, are happening all around the world right now. Let God sort them out. Millions are dying, have died. Now, ironically, it's interesting in a way that that is exactly what God is going to do. He said that the church and one fulfillment and the nation and another fulfillment will essentially die. He will turn Satan loose on us and his own anger loose on us. And as a result, <laughs> and that will bring quiet. But you see, God is different than us in that he can resurrect those people. So he'll have quiet for a while, he'll bring them up, and voila! Their attitudes will have changed. They will be contrite. They will be humble. They will say, I don't want that to happen again. He will have their attention. You see, he's chasing us in different ways to get our attention and to refocus on him, not our own houses, not our own ways, not materialism or anything else, but on building the church of God, building the temple of God of which we are the building materials, the living stones. We're supposed to be putting this together, but we can't. You and I cannot do it because our attitudes still aren't right. We're not there yet. If we were, this would be happening. The scattering would have stopped. Now, looking at the scriptures, I don't think the scattering is even going to stop once the unity starts. Because it's only going to be a residue who will listen to these scriptures. Only a small amount of people will respond. And the rest will have to go on to tribulation. Because they just will not hear these words of Haggai, of David, of Paul. On and on it goes throughout the whole Bible. To make real peace, someone has to sacrifice. Someone has to give. Someone has to apologize, maybe. Even if they are technically correct, someone has to make the first move. What about a husband and a wife when they get askance with one another? And maybe we're getting the silent treatment. Somebody has to say, I'm sorry. 
somebody has to say, I love you. Somebody has to make a move. Or the silent treatment could go on for weeks and months and years. You and I to make a movement if we are going to make peace. The peacemakers, Christ says. Not just those who sit around and wish there was peace. Not those who sit around and wish there was unity. Not those who sit around and wish we were all of one accord and singleness of purpose and mind. But those who make peace. Who go through what is necessary in order to create peace. Those are peacemakers. It is something that has to be actively done through negotiation, through giving place to someone else, even if it hurts, to speak good and not evil of others in other organizations or other individuals, to not raise yourself above them or ourselves above them in any way. And we're going to get to the crux of this very attitude here in just a moment. So since I said that, let's just do it. We can't stand here and just say we're going to do it. We have to do it. And let's go to do that to Philippians 2. Well, Philippians 2 is mainly where I want to go, but there's more here. Let's look first at Philippians 2 and... Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to esteem someone else better than yourself? Does that mean that if they have some ideas about a doctrine that you should esteem and judge that they're probably right and you're wrong? What if we had done that with Joe Sr. and Joe Jr.? See, if they disagree with us, does it simply mean that we have to say, well, you're probably right, I'm probably wrong, on all counts? No, that's not what Paul is saying. Second John 10 comes into play as well. It says, if they come and bring not this doctrine, don't allow them in your house. Don't listen to them. Don't pay any attention to it. So doctrine has to be correct. Can't go into apostasy just because somebody else has a different opinion and you should have seen their opinion better than yours. That obviously cannot be what this is talking about. Otherwise, we'd have left the truth a long time ago because somebody certainly is going to have a different idea about it than you or I might have. All right, what does it mean then? What's Paul talking about here? He writes to the Philippians... And he's in jail, apparently, when he writes this. Now, most of us, if we were in jail, how would we write a letter? Oh, woe is me. <laughs> I'm all jailed up here. I'm behind bars. Pray for me. Have mercy on me. Come see me. Woe is me. I'll never get out of this place. That's where our minds would tend to go. I didn't do it anyway, and I'm not guilty and would have justified a way of being wrongfully incarcerated. They nearly all do. Not guilty as charged. Now, what's Paul's mind on? He didn't particularly care, I guess. 
He says, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. He had his mind on the poor people in Philippians, or in Philippi. He didn't have it on poor Paul sitting here looking through the bars. His thoughts were of them. Verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more, and more in knowledge and all judgments, that you may approve things that are excellent, and so on, being filled with the fruits of the Spirit. Verse 13, he finally gets around to talking about his bonds in Christ, are manifest in all the palace and all other places. The fact that I'm here, he said, everyone knows Caesar's palace. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident that by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So he had found the lemonade and the lemons. The people were becoming bolder because they realized Paul was incarcerated unfairly. And they began to realize that they needed to turn to God without fear. <clears throat> So on and on it goes. Verse 23, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart or to die and to be with Christ in the resurrection, which is far better. Better. Paul said, I've lived a long enough life. I've been through enough. I believe I've finished the course, fought a good fight. I don't have anything in particular to live for as far as physical things are concerned. I had just as soon as die and in the next split second of my consciousness be with Jesus Christ. Now that was the feeling he had inside himself. But notice the next verse. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. He didn't have his mind on himself beyond saying, I just as soon check out, folks. But I have a job here to do. And he continues. Notice in verse 27. Only let your conduct be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. Keep your mind on the purpose of God. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs if you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. To come to have the spirit, mind, and attitude of Jesus Christ. You see, they had the truth. But he was concerned about their spirit and attitude. And that's what God is concerned with, with you and me, with Laodicea, with end-time lackadaisicalness. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation, they think you're going to hell in a handbag, and that's the way worldwide looks at you and me now, these scattered ones out here who just did not see the light. But he said, be encouraged in that. For to you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. It is given to you to suffer. And we are suffering. Our suffering may increase. So what's Paul talking about? Spirit and attitude. If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercies. Now here's what he's talking about in esteeming others better than yourself in terms of the context. He's talking about other people's needs, other people's emotions, other people's health, other people's desires. He's saying, get your mind on serving and helping one another, building unity between yourselves, not causing division and heartache 
by the things you say and do to one another. Whether it's of the same group or in a different group. Our love and our concern should not just be to our brother alone in this organization, but to all those in the other organizations as well. Because they're in United or Global or Culture or in their own living room with three or four other people, does that mean that they are in more spiritual condition than us? Are we not also scattered? Are we not also the object of God's wrath here in Paul's instruction? <clears throat> Fulfill my joy, he says, that you be like-minded. Isn't that what we read about in the definition of unity? Of one accord, singleness of mind and purpose and character. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. I, I thought of another point up there I did not want to miss, and that is, uh, where was it back up there, uh, in verse 27 of chapter 1. Striving together, I meant to emphasize. Not continuing to, to, to divide simply because someone disagrees with a particular nuance of doctrine but in love to work together to resolve the differences. But today the scattering continues because every time there's a difference it seems somebody splits. Is that the example of Peter, Paul, James, and John? They had some very definite issues over clean and unclean, over holiness and unholiness. Did they split over it? Or did they work through the problem? Did God eventually give visions and dreams, in fact, to show some of those fellows what it was he had in mind, like Peter's vision of the clean and unclean. Well, they could have scattered, but no, they worked together, striving together. Now let's go on back down to chapter 2. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Consider the needs of others, in other words. Not just doctrinal differences and saying, well, they, they understand that a different way, so they must be right, I'll accept that. No, he's talking about spirit and attitude and the way we treat one another in this whole context. How he would treat them and how they should treat one another. And he goes on down and explains that. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Isn't that what David began to realize? I've got to get my mind off myself and my own physical, carnal, materialistic desires and get it back on God's purpose. Then he said I can preach the truth. Once I get my attitude straightened out. Isn't that what God told them in Haggai? Get your mind off your own houses. Get your mind on my house and my purpose. Then go to work and build it. It goes on to explain here in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought him not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. This is what it's talking about in Romans 12.1 when it says, Present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Christ became a living sacrifice for you and me. He gave up reputation in the universe. 
He came down here and walked with unholy, filthy, godless men. And he served them in mercy, in compassion, in healing, in every way. He got tired. He got weary. At times he even went up into the mountains so he could just be alone and pray and recharge his spiritual batteries with his father. He couldn't take the press of the people anymore. But he gave up sleep. He gave up food. He gave up a lot to serve mankind. As a human being, he desired a marriage. He desired children. He desired all kinds of things just like we do. But he denied himself and esteemed others better than himself. You see, he might have desired to sit down and watch the television. But instead, he went out and visited the sick, healed the sick, helped the sick, wrote letters, wrote emails to people, encouraged people, didn't use the email for gossip, but to encourage and to help and to strengthen. Now, he didn't have those particular tools, but that's the way he would have used them because his character was that way. And being found in passion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of crucifixion, the most shameful death there could be. So esteeming others better than yourself is, me, is giving your time to them, time that you could have used to comfort yourself, to feed yourself, to get to deal your bread to the hungry, as Isaiah 58 says. Not your extra bread, but your bread, <clears throat> because they have needs. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. This is the spirit that we have to have. This is what God is looking for in us, the spirit of sacrifice, the spirit of denial of self, in order to not entertain the self, to comfort the self, but to give to others. Give of our time, of our energy. Verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which works both to will and to do of his good pleasure in you. Notice verse 21, For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Same problem then we've got today. That's why David and Haggai and everybody else talk about it, including Christ and including Paul. And that's why Christ gave his prayer there in John 17 just before he died, because he knew this would be the case. Now let's quickly notice, I've got just a couple, three minutes here. Um, well, let's not go to Ephesians 5. It talks there about submitting one to another in verse 21. Uh, Ephesians 6, 5 talks about if you're even a servant, a slave of someone else, to serve them with godly love and righteousness with all your heart. I mean, even as a slave, that's foreign to your ears and mine. We don't want to give anyone the time of day. We, we've got to hurry on in our society because we have money to make and people to abuse. Rat race. But I do want to go to 1 Thessalonians 2. I will hit that one very quickly here. 
First Thessalonians 2. Verse 7. <clears throat> Paul talks about the attitude and approach that he, as an apostle, and the other apostles of Christ, uh, and how they approach the people. Verse 7. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. Now, whether he's speaking here of someone who is taking care of a woman's children, or whether it's talking about a physical nurse with sick people, gently, lovingly, kindly, taking time, energy, to give to other people. Imagine yourself as a nurse, bedpans and bed sores, nursing, gently, taking care of the needs of others. Is that the attitude we have toward each other in this organization? Is it the attitude we have toward those in other organizations of God's church? Or unorganizations of God's church? They're still God's people. They may just be as much of the residue of, as we are. I want to be part of that residue, brethren. Help me. And I will strive to help you. We're in this together. We all need help. We need each other's help. That's the whole point of this. To get in line with the purposes of God. With the right spirit and attitude of daily sacrifice. Jesus Christ set the absolute supreme example. Placing his life below yours and mine. Esteeming us better than himself. In that he would absolutely lure himself from being God to becoming man and dying as a common thief on a stake. That is esteeming one's self lower than someone else. He gave every whiff of his time, his energy, his emotions, his feelings, his life for Israel and for this world. That must not be what is happening in the church today. Because we don't have that oneness, that unity, that harmony, that accord that Christ prayed we would have and prophesied we would not have because each would seek his own and build his own house. The world and worldwide church of God laugh at us. I saw a program not too long ago in which Joe Jr. was on PDL Club, I think it was, or 700 or whatever it was. And they were kind of laughing about those who didn't see the light. Laughed us to scorn. They shoot out their lips. The world thinks we're nuts and crazy. Those of them who are aware of us. If we are to worship God, we must worship in spirit and in truth. And I think right now the crying need is not in truth so much as it is in spirit, in attitude. And once we get this attitude of sacrifice to everybody in God's church, and to others outside the church for that matter, Christ never healed a converted person while he was on this earth. But he says, if you love one another, then is how, then is when, men will know that you are my disciples. We must not be accomplishing that because men don't think of us as God's disciples. They think of us as nuts. They can't get along with each other and fight and war among ourselves. 
We have some repenting yet to do, brethren. We have work to do to build the church of God. And before too long, God is going to give us the leaders. I feel firmly that that is going to happen. But who will be the residue who responds? Which of us are going to get to work? Which of us will recognize what's happening? Which of us will have the spirit and attitude to jump in without fear and work to build a temple? That is the purpose of God. And the reason we're not unified is we just aren't there yet. So brethren, let's work. Because we can be unified and God promises it. It's just a question of who will be there and who will not be there. Who will respond and who will not respond. I want to be one who does and I want you to be one who does. I will stop there for lack of time, not lack of something more to say, because the Bible is very full of this theme of the very purpose of God. So let's take God's words to heart. So let's take David's example to heart and Paul's example to heart and have our minds on God as the center of our focus and attention and on each other because every one of us has needs and go to work.